Every episode ends up an excuse for a chat. Uh, But the vehicle on this occasion is, I've got a run that I'm doing. Uh, And it's a run to Mooney Ponson back, basically, with a few twists. All right. And I walked it two days ago, and it took an hour and one minute. And I forget what my personal best is. Just a second, I'll check. Ah, yes, 46 minutes. Yeah, breaking 46 minutes. I don't care about the seconds. Uh, Roger Bannister, you know, nobody cares. Uh, Whether it was 3 minutes 59 or 3 minutes 58, all we know is he broke the 4 minutes. So he was in the 3 minute zone. So if I was Roger Bannister trying to break the 4 minute mile, the minute I did, yeah, I'm in the 3 minute zone, I would say 3 minutes. Okay. And marathon runners these days are trying to break the two-hour limit, is it? Yeah, that's the, the Roger, Roger Bannister moment for marathoners these days. And that Kenyan or Ethiopian, I forget which one he was, he broke two hours. You know, so he was um, he was one in my world. He'd be one hour 59, but who cares about the seconds? Um so he did, he did it in 1.59, yeah, you know, and probably 55 seconds or more. Um, okay, I'll get back to this. Okay, the stats so far. One hour and one minute if I just walk it to Mooney Ponds and back. Um, it, I, I did it in 56 minutes the day after, walking a little bit faster and doing a slight little jog. Uh, my personal best about a month or so ago was 46. So 101 is just walking it. 56, 46 is my personal best. So today I'm off again and I'll see if I can break 46 because I'm actually going to go for a bit of a jog today. I got a text whilst I was on the jog. I'm still on the jog, passing Windy Hill. And uh, the back end of Windy Hill, and uh, I ended up getting distracted and broke into a walk and started texting. But that's okay, I'm in no rush. I'll break the 47 minute barrier another day. I've been saying 46 minutes, but it's actually the, the goal is to break 47 minutes, you know, because I want my time to do 46 minutes and something. So, yes, in the Roger Bannister sense, I'm trying to break 47, you know, such that my time is 46 minutes and something. All right, there's my goals. That's enough new audio for this episode. In this new mini-series called PB, uh, I'll start a, a, an episode two in this mini-series. Uh, yeah. um, look. This podcast is for me, by me, for me. Uh, so, yeah, if this, if this um, all sounds a little bit, why would I want to hear this? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Go and listen to Mike Duncan or something. Bye-bye. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I, myself, have a little bit more talking to do with myself.
and that's coming up next, which is a bit of audio I recorded earlier when I had another crack at this run to Queen's Park and back and, you know, managed to break 47 minutes. I didn't jog the whole way. Okay, I'll have that audio and then I'll start a new episode. I won't even tell you how I went on today's run. That can be the first instalment for the next mini-series in this absolute waste of a time of a podcast. I love it. This episode is about me recording my times on a certain run I've marked out to get myself fit. Uh, But every episode I make is an excuse to have a chat anyway, and I end up having a chat about some random things. And I'll do that with this sort of episode, you know, a, a series of episodes called PB, you know, where I'm going for my personal best on one run or another. Uh, This episode is about a certain run I've marked out to Queen's Park and back from my house. It really doesn't matter where my house is for the purposes of this episode. That's that's for me to know, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, Now, in this episode, I end up chatting about a lot of things, but one of the things I chat about is a, a refugee story. Um... There's, uh, there are Syrians lined up on the border between Turkey and Greece, which for all I know might be along the beach, you know, looking out to the Aegean Sea, you know, hoping to get a boat across. I'm not sure where exactly they are. And I don't know how many there are. You know, there might be 200,000, 20,000, 10,000 or two. In the episode coming up, I think I said 200,000. Look, it might be 20,000, you know. 200,000 seems a lot. I think we'd notice. Um, Refugees are under the radar at the moment. The world doesn't care. Uh, Yeah, the world switches its caring on and off, but it's got bigger things to worry about now. Coronavirus, you know, uh, and things like that. And climate change. And uh, especially coronavirus at the moment. But last month it was climate change and it's um yeah the, you know you can get the mob excited by only one thing at a time yeah? and they care deeply while they're caring deeply about one thing or the other and at other times they, they don't care deeply you know they just drop them you know anyway um so i heard from this syrian bloke um on the border and he's hoping to get to london so i have a chat about him uh, now the BBC World Service is on the ground chatting to that guy. Uh, he sounded like a really nice guy, but, you know, obviously I, I took everything he said with a grain of salt. You know, if, you hear, if you've got a refugee on a border telling you his or her story, you'd be an idiot if you believed it because if you were a refugee on some border trying to get out of some terrible situation... Uh, and trying to get to a much better situation, you'd be an idiot if you were telling the truth. And unless you want to think that refugees are idiots, um, unless you want to think they're idiots, you... um, you, Hang on, which way have I said that? (laughs) Because I'm an idiot, you see. Uh, Then you should take what they say with a grain of salt. They're probably lying, you know. And I... (laughs) 
won't get into how I know, but, you know, I have a fair bit of contact, a fair bit of information uh, coming through uh, from refugees who've come here to Australia. And, you know, if you, if you get any progressive ever telling you that they're all, you know, that even a lot of them are, are, are you know, telling the truth about their circumstances, you know, like, for example, you know, um, oh, you know, they, I won't tell you the details, but they use every trick in the book, you know, they lie through their teeth, and so they should, I would too, you know, I'm not actually judging them from that, you know, but if someone's, you know, someone fronts up in Australia, you know, um, by some means, and then goes back, to his country, and then comes back with his wife. It could be his sister, dressed up in a wedding dress. Yeah, and if you, if you, um, if you think it's wrong to, uh, to even think that, well, then you're an idiot. And most refugees would tell you so. I don't know how many refugees you're in contact with, but 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 most refugees would tell you you're an idiot. Yeah. Um, if you're a young lady, for example, from Australia, and a young Australian, and you went over to anywhere you want, pick a country, um, and made friends with some people over there, they would probably pretty quickly ask you to dress up in a wedding dress and get photographed with some young, young local boy, it doesn't matter who it is, you know, um, so that you can come back to Australia and then claim that you were married to bring him across. They would do that, you know, if you... Um, got inside the community and all that sort of stuff, and they trusted you. They would say, "Quick, we've got a ready, you know, we've got a wedding dress waiting here for you. We're dying to get Mahmoud here, Mahmoud. You know, we're trying to get Mahmoud over to Australia. Please, you know, you've met us, you know us, we're good people, and they are. Get photographed with Mahmoud or Mahmoud, and uh, you know, let's say your name is um, what." Kylie, you know, your name's Kylie. Kylie, stand here next to Mahmoud and get photographed with him. And when you get back to Australia, you tell them that Mahmoud is um, your husband and you got married over here, but there were no papers, but, um, and cause a fuss and go to the newspapers if you have to. And, of course, if you're a decent sort of person, if your name is Kylie and you're a decent sort of person, you will do that. You know, you'll come back to Australia and you'll do that. Or else you'd be, even I would say you were a horrible person. Nobody's done anything wrong there. Okay, so, um, so you know, this bloke uh, on the Syrian border, I had no negative thoughts towards him at all as he was uh, coming across as just the most gentle, peaceful kind of person you would ever want to meet, the sort of person you'd want in your country. I don't know if he's that nice or not, but geez, he sounded nice. Yeah. And you know what? I'd probably take a chance on him. He did sound that nice. Um, but then again, I'm a bit of a softy. I'd take a chance on... You know, if I was over there on the border, I'd, uh, I'd want all 20,000 across to Greece. Yeah, that's me. Lucky I'm not in, in a position of power. Yeah, because if I got to know... Yeah, because I have got to know some people and... Well, when I when I do get to know you know refugees, and I do know a couple, um, and I go out for a barbecue with them or something, 
even I am thinking, you know, we've got to get your mates over here. You know, we've got to get your family over here. We've got to get your mum over here. We've got to get a lot of them over here because you are all good people. I love you people. And I get like that when I'm at a barbecue with someone. I get like that, you know. Um, but, you know, if I was the sort of person in government, Australia would go down the gurgler, you know. It's the lowest common denominator thing. Um, the whole world would end up, you know, uh, sort of in the same condition as the worst country in the world is if if you just if if there were no borders you know I, I actually think that would roughly be the case either that or the borders would just come back you know because there are some places that are more given to you know better resource and all that sort of stuff you know just you know they've got minerals in the ground and all that sort of stuff and the borders would just spring up again but if you if you maintained a no border situation which i don't think you could Borders would spring up again, you know. Let's say you obliterated every border in the world straight away, and it's today, you know, you were you were the uber powerful sort of world leader. Some, you know, a lot of sort of progressives would like to be that sort of leader and do away with democracy and just impose their wills and just strip the borders away, open all the borders, and say, everyone go where you want. You've all got a right to be anywhere, you know. And um, yeah, and, and there'd be indigenous people here in Australia who fought hard for native title, and they'd just be swamped off their land, yeah, by maybe a huge group of Syrians. How would you feel about that? You well, you wouldn't be able to say anything yeah, because you opened the borders, you know, that sort of thing, yeah. But you know, I'd lose my precious piece of land here too. Uh, look, it's a tricky one. And, and you know, these sort of arguments shouldn't be used as an excuse to do nothing. But then again, I pretty much do nothing anyway. Um, but right just now, I was listening um, on the BBC World Service before we get to this episode um, to another example of another Syrian, coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, it's um, from our correspondent, you know, that episode, um, and um, it's 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 where they, the BBC World Service roams around the world with no um, agenda. They really don't have an agenda. You know, they're really just trying to get world stories. They go everywhere, and they just land somewhere and they just hear someone's story and then they walk away. Okay, now I don't mind that model. You know, uh, they're not trying to get anything done or anything. They they they, they have a little segment. They say their segment. They interview someone, then they walk away. And they're just trying to get you um, in touch with what's going on in the world. Anyway, um, this mother um, was talking just now and she was in Syria, not trying to get out of Syria. So she's ensconced there. So she wasn't like that other Syrian who's on the border you know, of Turkey and Greece trying to get across and saying all the right things. So there was nothing in it for her. This reporter was not going to do anything for her. In fact, all hope was lost for her anyway. So she had no motivation to lie. And that makes a big difference, you know. So um, I, I wait. W-E-I-G-H-T. Um, people's words. I weigh people's words up, depending on how motivated they are or how much they need to tell a lie or not, you know. And I fully support people in telling lies if they have to. Right. Now, this woman had nothing to when uh, she all hope was lost, and I'll explain why. Um, a militia. Now, I don't. I don't want. I know. I know which group 
was the aggressor and which group wasn't and all that sort of stuff. There's always an, a horrible bad group and then a good group, you know, and the ones you're talking to are always the good group. Now, um, so she said, um, you know, the, the militia came in and just pushed them out of their own home. You know, they had a house. Um, and said, this is not your house anymore. We're commandeering it. We're taking it. You're out. You know? Now, this woman had a disabled child or teenager, Mahmoud. That was, that was actually his name. I used it before, you know, because that's what got the name into my head, Mahmoud. M-A-H-M-O-U-D, I believe it is. And uh, Mahmoud um, said, no, no, it's our house. You know, raised a bit of a fuss, apparently, you know. Um, cerebral palsy means, you know, you're still compass mentis, I, I believe, but he might have had a, another disability. Point is, um, the rest of the family were prepared to walk, but Mahmoud just stood there, you know, and probably in a, um, a sort of stunted, munted way. I said, no, 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 you know, our house, not, no, this is our house, you've got it wrong, you know, said something like that. And they carted him away. And uh, and then the mother and the father desperately tried to get him back and um, they didn't know how, couldn't find him, all that sort of stuff, you know, went to the authorities because you can still do that in Syria. It's not complete chaos. And um, got to where he had been put away and they said, no, we really, after we worked out that he had a disability, we, left, we let him go after two days, you know, and this was about a week in. Um, this was all four months ago and now... They're fairly certain he's dead wherever he is, you know. Look, well, the question is, is he alive or dead? Yeah. And then the episode finished and they moved on to the next episode and talked to someone else in a completely different country. And I'm sitting there and I was actually, I was actually sitting there thinking, oh, crikey, you know, you just want to do something about that. But I know I won't. Uh, but I just thought, you know, given the story was passed on to me, I'll pass it on to you, the listener. I haven't got any listeners, so it doesn't matter. You know, and the BBC World Service has got a lot of listeners, so a lot of people would have heard that story. But I wonder what sort of reaction other people have, but that one stopped me in my tracks. Look, 90% of the time I hear stories and I just let them slide. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, that leads into the following episode in which I accidentally talk about... Uh, Another ref- a Syrian refugee, yeah, but I end up talking about a lot of other things too. And at the same time, I'm tracking my personal best in runs I'm making on a, on a uh, track, I've made a trail I've made to Queen's Park and back from my house. Yeah. Where's this Queen's Park? Doesn't matter. Yeah. And, um, and today when I set off on my walk... Uh, to Queen's Park and back, um, I decided not to jog because it's been too long since my last run. Um, so I thought I'd better just ease myself into it. So I just walked the trail today and I'll jog it tomorrow probably. I hope I get back to it tomorrow because I need to keep myself fit. Isn't that funny me saying that? I really should be putting my activist hat on and uh, you know, I've got the money and get across to Greece and make sure that I help these um, Syrians get across um, from Turkey across to Greece so that they can go on to Europe and London and Paris and all that. So that's what I should be doing, um, but I won't be doing that. I know that. Uh, coronavirus, for example, will stop me. Yeah. Um, 
And coronavirus is probably going to stop all refugee movements pretty quickly anyway. It's going to have some um, good effects, coronavirus, on the climate, you know, temporarily, and uh, the refugee crisis, depending on who you are and which way you want that to go. But, you know, steadily, I think, at a bet, all borders are going to close. And that's, that's going to be the refugee problem off the table, isn't it? If you see it as a problem, you know, you might see it as a problem that the refugees can't all come here. Like I've got a friend who says they should all come here. I asked her once, how many of them? She said all of them. And she's not a stupid woman. She she knows how many people all of them are. You know, this would run to about a billion, wouldn't it? It's just not about the baths. It's about the people. Uh, But it is about the maths, you know. Um, people are people, yes, but they're also numbers. You know, people say, I'm a person, not a number. Well, you're both. You're a person and a number, and it matters, unfortunately. Yeah. Morally, I don't come down on one side or the other in the end, and I don't do anything much for anyone. But, you know, I do get affected by some of these stories that come through about refugees and all that sort of thing. Um, I do get affected but not affected enough to do anything about it. There are other people who do do things about it. You know, they hear stories like that and suddenly devote their lives to um, uh, helping refugees escape from one place or another. You know, there's an endless number of them. Ah, you know, numbers. There it is again. Um, But I don't know, you know, after they've helped move 50,000 out, you know, Look, they're good people, those people, but they've still got millions. And, um, you know, if you took the entire population, well, let's say you took 90% of the population of Syria out of Syria and brought them here to Australia, one thing that has occurred to me, you know, let's say, let's say there was 50 million people in Syria and you got that down to 5 million by moving 45 million here to Australia... The funny thing is, I think that population left back in Syria, 5 million, would be 50 million again in a couple of generations anyway, and in the long run, you haven't taken any... You know, you haven't alleviated the situation at all. There's a lot of... Numbers comes into it a lot. All right, then. Um, I'll just leave it at that. I came up with no solutions, um, and I was unhelpful in the extreme, but then, you know aren't most people on with the episode Syrians uh, uh, killed 24 Turkish soldiers or something like that last week Um, anyway it's all geopolitics and uh and Erdogan, I suppose, has to do something and he's sending a message and he's going to put some Syrians across into Europe. You know, that's, that's the message I'm getting. But none of that's interesting to me um, for the purposes of this episode because I want to talk about a little interview between a Syrian refugee uh, with a BBC World Service reporter um, that just that I just heard, yeah, and um, not necessarily. I don't want to talk about refugees and all that sort of thing much. Okay, so that's that. 
Um, so, um, I, and that sounds like I don't, I'm not caring enough about their plight. Uh, but then again, back when everyone was crying into their candles a few years ago, you know, I had a fairly moderate approach too then. You know, uh, pretty cruel, really, for a, as a Westerner. You know, so like, well, there's only so many you can save, blah, 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 you know, all that sort of bad stuff. And there were other people running around in circles around me saying, we must take them all in. Them all. I actually had that conversation with someone and I said, how many? And she said, all of them. And I went, do you know how many people that is? <laughs> uh, but look, it's not a laughing matter. It's a drama. It's terrible. Uh, and it's pretty bad of me not to be doing an episode on that at this point in time but then again all those people that were crying into their candles and my goodness they cried so hard and for so long last time when the refugee crisis was sexy you know I think (coughs) I think most um, marketing people in the charities world vision and all that sort of thing would would know what that means that you are um, competing with other causes and when you're hot everyone will cry for you and when you're not they'll just forget about you and uh, there are people of course you know, I'm glad I'm not on social media you know because you say a statement like that and people immediately assume that you're talking about them personally you know and then they get onto social media and they say I have been passionate right the way through. How dare you say that? I said, I wasn't talking about you. Yes, you were. Look at your text. I said, yeah. I said, you know, I don't see, you know, I don't see hordes of people down in King's Domain and in the city square crying so hard every night, night after night, that it's putting their candles out. You know, and that person said, I am no less passionate than I was then. And I said, I wasn't talking about you. And she says, yes, I was. You know, look at your text. And I said, all right, I'll read it again. I don't see hordes of people crying into their candles down in King's Domain uh, and the city square, which tells me that there's less passion about it than there was last time. People have dropped it in general, I'm saying. I have not, she says. And this is why you don't get onto social media. You get onto podcasts because there aren't idiots, you know, uh, replying back. You know, it's much more fun. I recommend it. Now... Um, yeah, so look, I'm pretty bad not to be making an episode about that now. Uh, this is all a cover, by the way, because I don't have the energy to run. You know, I'm walking my route. Okay. So, you know, taking my time. All right. Yes, so I'm, I'm, I'm not devastated about the plight of these refugees massed on the Turkish border at this point in time and neither was I uh, back then even when people were dying in the Mediterranean actually drowning you know now there was footage of it at the time you could see the people drowning you know and people were having an emotional reaction to that Uh, but I kind of kind of um, refused um, because I don't need an image to know what's happening. I've got a fairly good imagination and I've, I've said that all the way through these episodes that I've been making for a year, all the way through this, um, you know, 
this podcast, you know, uh, you know there are things I've read about history and uh, it's, it's, you know, and I've closed my eyes and imagined myself there and I didn't need an image of that poor little boy, Aelin, ages ago, or Elaine or whatever his name is, who drowned and was just washed up on a beach like seaweed. You know, where's my humanity? Well, my, where my humanity is, is I already imagined that image. I didn't need the actual photo, you know. And that same friend, by the way, that same friend, uh, when I was having this discussion with her and said, listen, you know, in some ways it's disrespectful for all the people who are suffering before there is a sexy image that, you know, will excite the public. In some ways it's disrespectful for all the people who didn't, who didn't have the benefit of that image you know if someone a bbc reporter or something they're there to take the photo and they just suffered in silence and i said and i did say you know way back then that you know and the time will come again when refugees are not sexy and you know i'll see you down in my uh in my coffee strip uh here in north essendon laughing gaily and forgetting about the refugees while um, they drown, you know, and um, I have actually seen that. Uh, I have not <laughs> issue. Yes, I know, but I've been dying inside. I couldn't see that. You look pretty happy to me. So on, so forth. It's very hard, you know. It's very hard. But I'm the worst. Actually, that person's wonderful. She does great things and many great things for lots of people uh, in need. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I'm passing the Essendon Bowling Club outside Windy Hill. And there's people as old as me having a little bowling club party. And they've got I Want to Be Your Man on. And they're doing old time rock and roll dancing. I hate that. You know, especially for a song, I Want to Be Your Man, which was... uh, a wild song, it was an angry song, it was a, a youthful song, you know. It, it was one of those songs, you know, the Beatles, you know, and, um, and then the Stones did it, and it was so edgy. It was, it was, there was, all the, the true rock songs back then, the rock and roll songs there, were designed to get people rioting in the Little Richard way. You know, like, like, if I stayed here, you could probably hear the song. It's atrocious. They're dancing on the little um, concrete bit in front of the bowling green. You know, it's so lame you know. Oh, a, you probably heard that. There's a woman coming out, singing it to herself. She's about my age. She's lost every bit of rock and roll she ever had. You know, she probably did have rock and roll, you know. But... You know, rock and roll, 50s rock and roll, is riot youth rock. Um, it's, it's music to riot with. It's not happy days, most of it. You know, like the real rock and roll. Um, not the, you know, look, there was um, music to rock and roll, you know, do that sort of boring sort of jitterbug kind of rock and roll. Um, but most of the time, you know, the good stuff, you know, uh, the dirty stuff, uh, you know, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, these sorts of people, the Beatles, they were dangerous rock bands and people rioted, you know, and, um, 
and and when you hear the same songs um done on a bowling green now you sort of when you're in touch with that rock and roll the way i have been all my life i never lost it i you know i've probably spoken about it before in this podcast i never lost it and uh, when i hear tutti frutti or long tall sally you know i hear uh i hear rebellion you know i hear um riots i hear riots you know um i hear little richard um coming into the studio an hour early uh to check out, check out, you know, chat with the lighting guys. He was a very, he was a professional like that. Elvis, you know, he the first time he saw the stage was when he walked on. You know, he didn't, he wasn't actively involved in the stage show. He was just a front man. He didn't even write his own songs. You know, people like Little Re, Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and all that. They wrote their own songs. They were the precursors of bands like the Beatles and pretty much all of rock. You know, ACDC, all these sorts of bands who wrote their own stuff. And you know, were their own people. Elvis was just a pretty boy outside, you know, up front, um, propped up there by the audience and the managers to look right and sing beautifully. You know, but he was a singer. It's not, he wasn't a song, and he wasn't a riot. He was. Look, you can see people screaming and everything in front of Elvis in old footage, but not the way they did with Little Richard where they lost control. Now, you might be a conservative and think this, is, this was a very bad period in history. You know, this, is, this is the start. This led to the 60s. Uh, but, you know, I'm a non-conservative deep down in this way. And there was something about that escape from you know, even my childhood of, you know, little caps and wearing a tie, even when I was four, uh, that it's attractive, you know, because, you know, growing up in a Catholic system back in the 1960s and then the 70s, um, you know, here, having a little Richard record, like Long Tall Sally or something, was eye-opening. You know? um, <coughs> anyway, and, and it had other effects too. It changed the world for the better in some ways, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, because there was um, segregation, for example, of course in the audiences, you know. So Little Richard, you know, highly racist, you know, but Little Richard was sometimes brought into, in for white audiences, you know, to be the singing monkey. You know, you may get offended by me even such... <coughs> excuse me, I've got coronavirus. Um, you might be offended by me saying that, but it's much better to get it out in the open. Um, if you look at some of that old footage... Look at some of that. You know, Google it yourself, YouTube. Um, Little Richard, early versions of Lucille, Tutti Frutti, Long Tall Sally or whatever, when he's in the 1950s, you know. And you've got an all-black band fronted by Little Richard up the front. And the entire audience are white and heavily middle-class to semi-rich, you know. And clearly, the band has been brought in for entertainment, and Little Richard knew that that was why he was being brought in, you know. But he was able to. But this was this is the stuff that got onto YouTube. Um, he was also going. That, that was with grown-ups, you know. That was with thirty-year-olds, thirty-five-year-olds. You know, even Bill Haley was in the audience tapping along. I noticed in one of those uh, clips. Um, although I have a lot of time. For Bill Haley, uh, he uh, came up from nowhere. 
he came up from nothing yeah he uh he's a self-made rock and roller just like little richard was um and clawed his way to success um that gritty sort of clawing your way to success that you had to have back in those days it wasn't very pretty um trying to get out of poverty in america back then uh, you had to grind it out and some people managed to claw their way to the top you know and bill haley was an example of a white bloke that did that and little richard was an example of a black bloke who did that and all credit to both those blokes you know but anyway uh, little richard also uh, did lots of concerts in um in halls uh, at the same time with teenagers it's a whole different story not this staged sort of event this cleansed sort of event this sanitized sort of rock and roll that you know the conservative white people wanted yeah because there was this a wave of rock and roll that sprang you know that jumped some of the some of the white people would have seen it as something like a virus jumping species you know um it jumped from the black community into mainstream white community off the black charts onto the white charts um and there were trailblazers for this you know chuck berry um fats domino little richard and also uh, elvis doesn't matter what color you are but he uh, grew up amongst gospel and you know black um, black gospel and all that sort of stuff. He was into all of that. And there were other lesser-known people, that Greek guy um, who did Willie and the Hand Jive. Yeah. Uh, who was that? Otis. Jo- Johnny Otis. Yeah. People like that, they were crossover guys. They, you know, they're, they're the non-racists of their time in the most racist time you can imagine. Um, and uh, Johnny Otis... Uh, yeah, yeah well, what a great song, Willie and the Hand Drive. But he pretty much joined the African-American community. You know, he's a Greek bloke, Greek-American. Anyway, all that aside, and Johnny Otis. Uh, there's a, a great little YouTube clip where, because Johnny Otis ended up a preacher, and so did little Richard. Excuse me. Suburban Essendon. Somebody uh, mowing his lawn. It's just so safe. <laughs> I love it. Now, um... So, Johnny Otis, um, yes, all of these guys, you know, this is, they were, they were the underground rock and roll, they were the real thing, you know, the edginess. Now, there was some nice, safe rock and roll too, um, you know, your Pat Boone, you know. Okay. What happened was you had this sanitised set, you know, that came back a bit from the, from the dangerous stuff and they became very popular because, you know, the slightly older white uh, listening public, you know, they wanted something not quite that dangerous, bring it back a little bit so that our kids won't be corrupted, you know and they all sat back and said alright, we can handle that, we can handle Pat Boone, we can even handle the Everly Brothers, you know, even though, you know look, the Everly Brothers wrote a song Wake Up Little Susie and uh, and that got everyone upset, you know, because that implied that white people were doing what black people do sleeping with each other before marriage white people never do that, you know 
corrupting the youth. Yeah, and then and then you had all these situations. You know, so and you know what? Uh, Little Richard wasn't banned for doing m- songs that were much worse than that, miles worse. Why did Wake Up Little Susie get banned? Because it was white boys doing it. Yeah, but um, Little Richard, he could sing songs and get away with it because he was black. You know, you'd almost say, oh, lucky little Richard. But there was a big, strong racism angle to that. You know? Yes, little Richard was free to do a lot of things that, um, that uh, you know, someone like Pat Boone or Everly Brothers or even Elvis were not allowed to do. Oh, speaking of Elvis, you know, now there's your nice southern white boy and uh, little Richard, southern black boy. Now, here's the thing. That same clip I was talking about before, essentially, little Richard has sex with his piano. Look, you don't have to take it from me. Google it. I think it was Tutti Frutti or Lucille, one of them. But anyway, he puts one leg up on the piano, gives a cheeky grin, and starts having sex with the piano. Now, at everyone let it go because what more would you expect from a black bloke Um, whereas Elvis was just swiveling his hips and he was it it wasn't no one was allowed to show him from the waist down on TV but little Richard was able to root his piano on being rude on purpose why? Because what more would you expect from someone like Little Richard? Now, Little Richard's a smart bloke. He knew all this, but he was clawing his way. There are different priorities, yeah. Uh, depending on where you are in the world, um, his only aim was to get out of that gutter. Yeah, Little Richard, he, he, had, um, he was in the worst possible shape. You know, he was like um, Japan before Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, he had nothing going for him, everything. He had all the odds of the world against him and all he had was his raw, um, his raw force of nature, his internal raw force of nature. And he was going to use that to get out of the gutter. Yeah, he had everything going bad for him. He was, um, yeah, he was disabled, essentially, you know, and um, he wasn't able to dance properly because he had a club foot. Um, he, um, and, and, and this made him a little bit outcast from, you know, because he came from the same place as James Brown, and James Brown could dance, and, and you, you weren't allowed to have soul if you couldn't dance. This is how horrible African-Americans can be to their own. Look, everyone's human, and uh, there's a lot to not like about humans. Now, um, so, um, so, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, he had everything against him. Little Richard, you know, like he was black you know, at the worst possible time to be black, you know, back in 1930s and 40s uh, and 50s. Um, and he was, um, as I said, he had a disability. He had a huge head. It is ridiculous. Google Little Richard with the Beatles, you know, this is a famous photo of Little Richard sitting with the Beatles. His head is twice the size of um, any of the others. Twice. It's like a balloon. And he was very self-conscious about it, you know. And he used to go around saying, I'm so beautiful, I'm pretty. He did that before Muhammad Ali did that, you know. He had that jive talking going. He was clawing his way to the top, and I respect him a lot for that. 
he's an outrageous ego and the more I get to know him over the years the less I like him the less I want to meet him but I have to uh, give him a tick of approval for getting himself out of the gutter now he was also poor and dirt poor on the wrong side of the tracks in that classic way that you get in America you know where one side of the tracks you can see lovely houses and on the other side of the tracks uh, yeah you get to see um, yeah just poverty you, know, you just have to cross the train track you know, but why would you well little Richard did except the other way you gotta I have to commend him for that you know, and he clawed his way up through sheer force of personality and uh, the Japs would have done the same thing had we not nuked them yeah. Some, sometimes um, people say, well, what can you do? You know, it's a very simplistic way of looking at the Japanese situation at the time. Um, and if you're Chinese, you'll hate the Japs anyway. Uh, but uh, the Japs at the time, um, uh, yeah, they, well, no, I won't get into that. Because <laughs> I lost my train of thought anyway. Back to little Richard, force of nature. The Japanese have a force of nature too. And so does England. Some of these places, you know, England and Japan remind me of each other a little bit. Um, when I stand back on the moon and look at Eurasia, they're the two little bits on the edges. You know, they're like, if Eurasia, Europe and Asia, uh, were a great big head, England and Japan are the two ears on each side. And your geography um, says a lot about who you are. Look, I'm nearly home now. I never did walk. I never did run. Uh, and I've completely forgotten what I was talking about at the start because I, li- I tend to digress and then lose it altogether, which I really have this time. And I'm definitely not going to make my way back. I am absolutely sure of it. Let me think, is there any way I can think of what I was talking about way back at the start? I think the answer is going to be no because I got too far off track that time. Um, I was talking about something. Whatever I was talking about, I, um, I then went and used Little Richard and all this sort of stuff as an example of a point I was about to make. Can you join the dots? Because I'm nearly home. And, um, and you work out what conclusion I would have drawn had I remembered. Now, stay there for a sec. I'll see how many minutes I took on that whole walk. Uh, oh, hang on, I got in under the hour. Tap, 58. Now, I started at 2. 2 minutes on the hour, and I finished on 58 hours, minutes on the hour. That's 56. So, 56, but look, my personal best is 46, but that was just a straight walk, and I needed it. I needed it, because right at the start of this episode, I said, I'm just going to walk this one, and let's fill in some time. Now, um, you know, as I do, now, um fill in some time will that prompt will that give me a reminder of what I was talking about way at the start no I don't think it will um so what I'll do is just finish there I'm going to listen back to the start and then um and then see and then remind myself aha no wonder I couldn't find my way back to what I was talking about before I digressed. Now, Billy Connolly style, you know, he, he, he does that. He, he finds his way back. I couldn't find my way back. 
And that's because my digression had nothing to do with what I was talking about in the first place. You know, I was talking about some Syrian uh, refugee <coughs> um, on the border of Turkey trying to get across to um, Greece uh, right now. Um, and I happened to pass the Essendon Bowling Club where they were doing rock and roll dancing and I just completely dropped what I was talking about and talked about something else. Uh, so no wonder I couldn't find my way back. There was no link, but I, I, I remember now. <laughs> uh, okay, so there was this Syrian bloke on the radio just now being interviewed by the BBC and, um, and he... Uh, all right, and what I was going to talk about before I talked for about half an hour on something else unrelated was... Um, that, uh, they asked him, um, you know, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, you know, and he, he said all the right things and they were probably sincere. And he said, um, you know, when I see all these people living in the forest and they haven't got, you know, any food, it hurts my heart, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You know, and I think, and he sounded definitely genuine. There's a kind of soft Syrian, you know, that I hear a lot on the radio. When the BBC goes around interviewing refugees... They're, they're kind of a gentle, gentle, gentle people, you know. Um, and, um, you know, and, and they're never anything but, you know, which is interesting, you know, because um, when hostilities break out, my God, it goes the other way and they, maybe they're different people, you know. There might be one set of people that actually uh, runs and one set of people that fights, you know, and I think that's true. And look, there'd be a few fighters in amongst the gentle ones. But look, we are seven billion beautiful souls and only a few of us are not. Okay, now, um, anyway, these people, are, they really are the most gentle people you can imagine. Yeah. Um, anyway, and they said, where are you hoping to go? And he said, London. And, you know, still nothing interesting in that. I've heard this before. Um, but, you know, of all the places in Europe, he wanted to go to London. That's interesting. bit offended. He didn't want to come to Melbourne. <laughs> uh, no, but London. Um, I thought, all right, you've chosen, you know, pretty much the second furthest place to go besides Ireland. And who'd go to Ireland anyway? Um, anyway, so he said London. I said, oh, that's interesting. He didn't, he didn't say Berlin. You know? And... Um, and he definitely didn't say Athens. <laughs> so, you know, Greece is obviously a stopping, you know, just want to go, right, I want to blow right through Greece, you know. Uh, anyway, and, and, and that doesn't say much for the Fifth Republic, does it? France, you know, liberty, egalité, fraternity, that he wants to go right through there, you know, the place that got rid of the monarchy, um, wants to go right through there, jump in the channel and end up in London and dump, forget about Paris. So, yeah, yeah, big tick for England, you know, even though it's got a monarchy still. Well, a constitutional monarchy. Anyway, what was interesting to me about all that was what he said next. And they said, oh, yeah, why London? And he said, because um, I've got many, many friends there, you know, because we've got the internet now, so he's able to talk to his friends in London. So they'd be previous Syrians that have gone across. And I've got many friends, and he said, it's a wonderful country, and, everyone, and there are plenty of opportunities, and um, everyone has very much respect. And I went, oh, now that's interesting. You know. Um, now, when people try to say that places like London are, you know, a very accepting sort of place for, you know, refugees to go to and all that sort of stuff. You know, there are people, and I know some, who say there is no way that's true. There is no way that's true. Um, yeah, a colonial power like England has not 
dropped its evil ways at all. Um, white people are very bad. And, um, and I think someone put a percentage of 90. You know, I asked someone, you know, or, you know, a place like Melbourne, you know, or London, we're pretty similar. Um, so, you know, how, what are we like to minority groups and all that? So she said 90% racist and absolutely horrible. 90% racist, you know. And I think it was 90% she put a figure on it. And this is a person who was about 19 or 20, you know. And um, I feel like putting her into a room with this Syrian bloke and say, listen, can you two get your... F- Get your stats together and then come back at me. Yeah. Um, so what's he... Look, he, he's indi- he is indicating that generally a civilization, you know, like London, you know, we'll call... Let's call London a civilization. Um, uh, that's a, um, is a, a very nice place to be, you know. Uh, very respectful people, you know, for Syrians like him. Whereas there's some other people saying, no, um, we are horrible and we should be ashamed of ourselves all the time. I'm actually not going to come down hard one way or the other. All I'm saying is I'd like to get that Syrian and this young lady that I was talking to in the same room and let them fight it out, and I'll, I'll play, I'll play uh, debate sort of referee, and I'll give them points. <laughs> all right, uh, let's get on to this. Uh, whoops, got to find the off button. Just a minute. Before I do get on to the rest of this episode, which may or may not be or end up uh, about me uh, going for my personal best on my run to Queen's Park, um, yeah, I keep coming back to that, uh, my friend, uh, yeah, who um, says, bring all the refugees in, all of them. You know, uh, you know, I, I often sort of, there's so many angles to that, but another one I just thought of, and I'll just push it. I'll push it into the episode before I go. Um, is uh, as um, a Euro kind of Aussie, um, she's kind of um, got an equal compassion to all refugees. Um, yeah, she her heart is going out to. Um, let's say Sudanese people as much as it's going out to Afghanistanis and her heart is going out to Syrians as much as it's going out to Somalians, you know, something like that. Um, Yeah, she's kind of got a, um, she's pan-compassionate, you know. I made up that word because the word pandemic is in the air at the moment. Um, But the funny thing is... um, if you uh, if if you do get a refugee into Australia, and it doesn't matter where a, re- a refugee comes from, once a refugee comes into Australia, that person I think would um, would disagree very strongly with my friend that all refugees should come in yeah, because they're already in. Um, my guess is, and you know. I'm, fairly informed guess is that uh, they would like their entire family network to come over yeah, so if you get someone from uh, Syria, because Syria is the sort of refugee excuse me the refugee du jour for me um, so you know the Syrians might say oh, well, you know, I want my family to come across and I want my family's families 
to come across and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I'd like about another 10,000 um, refugees to come in. So, in that sense, I agree with your friend, Charlie. You know, cause, you know I might have my friends sitting there saying, bring them all in. But then I might have this um, person from Syria um, and that person might be saying, yeah, let's not be too hasty. Um, can we bring in all my people in? But don't bring in my enemies, for example. Don't bring in Africans. You know? um, and don't bring in people I don't even know, you know, from cultures. Don't, we don't need any Afghanistanis, you know. Um, and that would be the same, you know, like if, if it was Sudanese, you know, they'd say, oh, yeah. um, don't bring in someone we hate, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, look, my friend might be at odds with pretty much all refugees, possibly. And she might think she's on the side of all refugees because she's saying, let all refugees in. So, she, of course, she's on the same page as all refugees. But no. Each individual refugee, on average, I reckon, at a bit, would um, want only their people to come in, but definitely not any of their enemies. Yeah, because that's what they left the place to escape. That's why they left the place to escape. And you know, my friend might say, "Well, bring in, you know, like a Shiite, for example." Yeah, might say, "Don't bring the Sunnis in, the ones who used to kill me." say yes but they look at them they're um at the gates you know they're at the barbed wire fences near greece crying as well let them all in and um and these shiites that have already come into um come into australia would say don't be an idiot and she said well i let you in you've got you know um you know what i'm getting at there's another angle that's all there's a lot of angles you know I did my run again today on the 2nd of March. I think it was yesterday I did one on the 1st of March. Oh, excuse me. And today I did it in 48. Uh, and yesterday I think it was 50 something, I can't remember. Now, um, three weeks ago I did it in 48 as well. And then the following day got it down to 46. That means that um, tomorrow I should be able to get it down to 46, but I think I can do a little, even a lot better than that. Okay, so that's that. That's where I'm at in March. Now I'll just flip back to February for a minute, and then, then we can push on to March again. You know, my, my fitness, I've let it go. You know, my diet is fantastic, fantastic. Uh, my zen is fantastic my psychology is fantastic everything else is fantastic you know uh my fitness i've let go but it's going to make a comeback now right so i've mapped out a course and it uh the course starts at my house glass street up to many ponds around the lake out you know out the back of um you know go around the lake and then there's a little road off the strand there that takes you down to the tafe Kangan Batman Tafe, and then around the back of Windy Hill, and then over the little footbridge near Windy Hill, and then up Napier Street, the rest of Napier Street, and then left into Glass Street and back home. Right, 
Now, uh, yesterday I ran that in 48 minutes and some seconds. I think it was around about 50, so 50 seconds or so, but I'm not keeping track of the seconds, you know. So my personal best as of yesterday was 48 plus. Um, and today I ran it again, lifted my game a little bit, but didn't, still didn't push myself. Uh, you know, a lot of it was walking yesterday and today because I've let my fitness go. We'll build it. We'll build up slowly. Um, today, 46 minutes plus, you know, so I've sliced off two minutes plus probably. So my personal best now, as of today, yesterday was the 8th of February or maybe the 9th and Today's the 9th of February or maybe the 10th. Actually, yesterday was the 9th, today it was the 10th. Okay, let's see how we go. And uh, my personal best as of now, as of today, is 46 plus minutes. 46 minutes plus, you know, 46 plus.